Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ricky Schlott. I'm here with Ravi and also a guest that needs little introduction, Andrew Yang. Thank you so much for joining The Lost Debate. Hey, Ricky. Great to be here. Hello, Ravi. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for being with us. We're such uh, fans of your work and, and a lot of what you've been pushing over the years. I think the easiest place to start is, you know, what's the problem with our two-party system right now? Uh, you know, uh, it took me a minute to figure it out. I guess you guys uh, are, um, you know, very, very savvy. Your audience is savvy, so you might already get it. But the the numbers I try and use to paint a picture are uh, that Congress has a 22% approval rate, but incumbents have a 94% re-election rate. And then you think, well, that doesn't seem to make much sense uh, until you realize that the districts are drawn, 90% of them, uh, to be uncompetitive in the general uh, which means that you don't have competition from the other side. Your your only threat is to get primaried from within your own party, which then keeps you very, very much in line that has uh, very, very nasty distortions on the Republican side, for sure. Democratic side, they look different, but they're also, in my opinion, pretty nasty. And so most of us are looking up being like, what the heck is going on? Uh, and 75% of the country is actually in a one party zone. Um, so Ravi, are you here in New York with me and Ricky? I am. Yes. Yeah. I grew up here in Staten Island. Oh, well, Staten Island is a bit of a, <laughs> a, an exception to this because, you know, you guys are um, like pretty swingy, um, even yeah. conservative, you'd say. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed sure. campaigning on Staten Island. You were very popular in Staten Island, if I remember correctly. I, and it, it, it like I was very, very proud of that. I mean, you know, there are a lot of uh, cops, firefighters, and I got endorsed by cops and firefighters. So, you know, <laughs> I guess it made sense. Uh, uh, love you, Staten Island. Anyway, so <laughs> most of the um, most of the city, uh, most of the state, even is uh, well, uh, like the the populated areas uh, of New York State are are traditionally blue zones, and so if you're in the blue zone, uh, you're not really worried about a Republican coming and upending you. Um, uh, and the same is reverse in let's call it a rural area or. Uh, Missouri, Mississippi. So what they do is they head fake us and say, hey, you know why you're pissed off? It's like the people over there. Meanwhile, in most of the country, there is no other group over there. It's just like (laughs) the the folks in charge. Uh, And and when there is an opening, you see the discussion every time is like, oh, who's going to run for this open seat? And then they list off, well, here are the three people in the notch below that like this is their this is their next step. And you're just like, wait a minute, like that's the way it works. Just like, you know, you get an open seat and then like someone's been lying in wait for 12 years. And then they so so like there, there are a bunch of problems with the system that are upsetting uh, people more and more. And, you know, one thing you and I, you know, I came out of Democratic politics. I worked on the Obama campaign, but I classify myself as a politically eclectic. And I'm, I kind of vote Democratic out of a sense of fear of the other side more than a sense of love often of the candidates that You're I have. You're the only one, offer. Ravi. Everyone else is doing it out of love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I imagine, I imagine the same is true of a lot of my friends on the other side, like my Trump supporting friends on Staten Island. And I think the thing when we start with the presidential level, and I know that like there's so much work that we're not talking about at the local level and for other seats, which I want to spend the bulk of this on. But just getting this presidential stuff out, like the worry I always have in supporting a third party candidate, where often they speak to me, is the sense that if a third party candidate garners a significant amount of the votes, the 
and nobody gets over the threshold electoral college wise, it goes right to the House of Representatives and it's like a majority of states uh, delegations and it would automatically give it to the Republicans. And so that's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. And it's often like the question I often ask, like I've had friends who've been strategists, like helping this person, you know, Howard Schultz, is he going to run? You want to go talk to Howard Schultz? And I'm always just like, ah, oh, man, like even if I love the person, I feel like the way it's set up, makes you have to have, make this like very difficult choice where you're almost like supporting not the third party candidate, but the, the candidate in the, the Republican party. You know what I'm saying? So oh, yeah, like, totally. what do we do about that, that? That's like the, the, the single biggest reflex reaction when you even say third party. Um, and it, they fast forward to Ralph Nader or, uh, some, some, uh, spoiler really, who ended up screwing it up for someone. And we're at a point now where there are a lot of folks who think that, uh, you know, let's say, let's use Trump as an example. I personally think Trump would be a catastrophe uh, if he were to be our president again. I think it would be the revenge tour and just really, really rancid. Um, so so people are logically like, okay, don't, don't want to do something that ends up increasing the chance of that. I think what, what they're missing um, where the work I'm doing is, is concerned is that there are half a million races that aren't the presidential and we're kind of brainwashed to think like, Oh, presidential, presidential, presidential. Um, uh, and there are a lot of things you can do again. 75% of the country is like, uh, you know, one party zone. You, and by the way, neither party is really trying to contest the other side's turf anymore. Like you mm -hmm. go to a red state or, or a rural area, you think the Democrats are there like trying to make it happen. No, they're not right. <laughs> you know, they're, they're like, uh, you know, the same is um, largely true in reverse. Um, so, uh, so people use the presidential as a cudgel and say like, hey, you know, be afraid, be afraid. Um, not entirely irrational. Um, it's just that there is a, a lot of other opportunity uh, all over the country. And by the way, the, the situation you just described is easily remediable through something like ranked choice voting, which other countries have been using for generations. Uh, and if you were to pose that to the Dems, who, by the way, theoretically, could make these changes, uh, you know, I mean, uh, they control most things, um, that, that it say, hey, you worried about the spoiler effect, just adopt ranked choice voting. And you know what the response never is? That's a great idea. We should do that. Um, <laughs> be, be, because, uh, like, they, they actually aren't interested in allowing for any uh, dynamism or entrance or really true lowercase d democracy. Um, they just want control and they like the cudgel. And they say, look, like you're going to mess it up. And it's like, well, let's make it so I can't mess it up. And then it's like, no, or like, you know, <laughs> uh, and uh, by the way, you're seeing this uh, on full display in terms of the Democratic debates or lack thereof. You know what I mean? Like Joe's running for reelection and then um, uh, they're like, no debates. <laughs> and, then they, and then they they went to. Um, all of the, by the way, they went to all of the uh, wannabe presidential candidates in the field and said, hey, you run against Joe. It's it's the end of your political career. Um, but if you play nice, there's a chance you actually get the nod if Joe can't run. So uh, come play nice. And then all of the governors uh, are like, OK, like, you know, I, I get it. Um, so, uh, you know, there are a lot of everyday Democrats, everyday Americans who are uncomfortable with an 81, 82 year old uh, incumbent running again. Um, you know, there's like a 44% chance he doesn't make it through a second term actuarially. Um, uh, and, you know, so that that's just common sense. But no, not allowed to talk about it. 
Uh, you know, and then if you raise your hand and be like, hey, guys, this doesn't seem like a very good plan. It's like, you know, you're a Trump enabler. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, so well, Ricky, I'm s- hogging Andrew's time. So jump oh, in here. Sorry. Good. So I've seen you tweeting recently about these record breaking numbers of registered independents and how people are just kind of hemorrhaging from the major parties. And it makes me think of um, my dad, who's 85 and who has only once in his entire life voted for a Democrat and that was JFK. So I'm really aging you, dad. Sorry, I'm sure he's listening right now. <laughs> but he just randomly like came to me a few months ago and was like, oh, I just re-registered as an independent out of nowhere. No idea what inspired that. Something from Maybe the heavens the came. Podcast. And podcast, I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure you haven't Richie? converted him, Robbie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout out <laughs> um, to Dick Schlatt. But just out of nowhere. And so I think, you know, it's hard for me to imagine all the diverse reasons that people are ending up in this disaffected pile. Like I think of my generation, I'd like to think it's a great thing that we're all so independent. But I saw a statistic recently that like four in 10 Gen Zers say that the founding fathers are better described as villains than heroes. And so you have totally disparate reasons, theoretically, that these people are ending up in this independent pile. So how, how in your view, do you unify and mobilize these people who might not see the two-party system as serving them, but might end up in completely different political stacks when it really comes down to it. It's very accurate, Ricky. So the uh, the polling, polling, by the way, objectively shows a massive increase in people who are um, doing what your dad did in declaring political independence. Uh, I think something like two-thirds of young people don't like either party. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have this system that's ripe for some kind of change or evolution. Um, but then the powers that be are like, well, like, you guys can all say, call yourselves whatever you want. If we're just going to saddle you with, uh, with the same choices, uh, you're stuck. So it doesn't matter. You know, hold your nose and like, you know, like pick the D or the R. Uh, and I spoke at a class at Columbia yesterday, and I said, "Okay, guys, like record number of people saying they're independents. Um, I'm going to give you three choices as to what what's going to happen." in the next 40 years. Number one, two-party system continues as it always has, 40 years. Number two, uh, we descend into autocracy and uh, authoritarianism and some form of madness because uh, one of the parties wins and it's got terrible leadership and they just decide to, you know, like go go hog wild. Uh, Or number three, the political system evolves in some way and you wind up with multiple parties, ranked choice voting, nonpartisan primaries, like more people... Um, from from different backgrounds running, uh, like which do you think is the most likely of those three scenarios? Um, and, and my argument is, look, do you really think this system's going to stand for another forty years? <laughs> you know, yeah. like, like, are you kidding? I mean, like, you could see the trust in institutions plummeting and the number of self-identified independents uh, surging. And so it's like, you really think in in a context where everything else is changing, this badly designed political system is going to do it? Um, and, and unfortunately, if they asked me like what I thought the most likely scenario was, I think it's number two. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have a uniquely vulnerable political system um, that's totally subject to massive uh, groupthink and corruption, uh, and you're, you're probably going to get that. Uh, you know, now I'm saying we should choose option three uh, and try and evolve in advance, and uh, you know, shift to things like nonpartisan primaries and ranked choice voting that would allow true competition and dynamism and evolution. Um, And when I was in Nevada uh, campaigning for a ballot initiative that said, uh, hey, let's get rid of the party primaries, both parties came out against it. Uh, You know, they're like, primaries Mm -hmm. good, Uh, voter choice bad. (laughs) Mm 
and, uh, and then when I, and when some Democrats hear that, they were like, Democrats came out against this? And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, like they, they spent seven figures on legal challenges. They sent nasty text messages saying it would be too confusing for voters. Um, like, uh, so, you know, like that, that this is the true nature of the challenge. They'll try and dupe you and say, hey, the, 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 the problem is, uh, you know, always this side versus that side. Um, you know, we should be working to improve the system. In part because even if you favor one side or the other, guess what? The other side's going to win yeah. at some point in a two-sided system. I mean, you you have a recession, uh, you know, next year. Like, you you really think that we're, like Dems are going to cruise? Like, of course not. I was having this debate with somebody the other day about the Department of Education, and they were saying, "Well, we need to centralize more. We need to centralize more education policy." And I said, "Well," and this is a Democrat I was talking to. I said, "Well, there's like a fifty-fifty chance, if we're being generous, that somebody like Trump or Ron DeSantis is the next Secretary of Education. Do you want to put that?" power within, you know, their hands. So people only think of this, you know, as it relates to their party. But Andrew is like, the thing that worries me is like, often we're trying to convince people to give away a little bit of their power. Cause we have to, we have to lobby the very people who've benefited from the system to reform the system. Yeah. And that's always really hard. Do you have any sense of like, what's a good strategy for that? Like, do we try to pass laws that say 15 years from now, this system reforms, not tomorrow? One of the proposals I had, Ravi, was uh, let, let's say uh, congressional term limits, but current members are exempt. You guys yeah. can stay forever. You know, you'll yeah. be like the the super oldies, like hanging out. And then after you die off, uh, you know, then like the next people will have, let's call it 12-year term limits. And then they could have their cake and eat it too. They're like, look, yeah. modernize the system. And now I get to cling to power. So, uh, you know, like th there are creative things you could do in, in that direction. I think the Nevada example is instructive where uh, it won 53 to 47 because it's what people wanted. I mean, mm -hmm. like, like that's the kind of work that I'm doing now is like saying, look, expecting institutions or organizations to go against their self-interest is a waste of time. Like appealing to their better instincts, a waste of time. You, mm -hmm. What you need to do is you need to have a popular movement that actually makes it politically platable for people to do the right thing. Actually, politically necessary for them to do the right thing, um, because like, uh, trying to appeal to their better natures is is largely a waste of time. Uh, and and by the way, I don't even blame them in the sense that uh, so there was a quote from Ezra Klein that said, uh, "Toxic systems compromise good individuals with ease." Uh, the darkest mm. thing about what's going on right now is like I and you guys do probably to sit and meet with people who are in the system, and they're like pretty freaking reasonable. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's just that, you know, what's unreasonable for them to uh, commit professional suicide, which is what a lot of them are, are told they would have to do if they decided to go for campaign finance reform or term limits or what have you. And so I completely agree with you that this grassroots sort of informing people about ranked choice voting and open primaries is is kind of the only route forward. But I credit you entirely for opening my eyes to those concepts. It, they were completely foreign to me and probably something that if I had just like gone to my head been asked about before I was informed, I'd probably be like, no, that sounds like too radical or too different. I don't know, like not going to cons consider it. And I, I wonder like, what is, how do you get around the challenge that first of all, it's maybe not entirely intuitive why it works. Like you need to really sit down and, and think about why, why this, why a ranked choice open open primary system would 
uh, you know, kind of defer more to the average or, or mean of a population rather than the extremes. And, you know, it's not necessarily the sexiest platform where you could just go around and say like, oh, the other side is evil. And so vote for me and, and let's all just kind of do our little tribal routine together. So how do you get over that, that hurdle of, of informing people and getting people to actually buy in and care enough to engage with something like electoral reform? Oh, well, thank you, Ricky. I mean, it, it uh, warms my heart that, uh, you know, I, I uh, put you onto something because um, I, I respect you and your work a great deal. It makes me happy. Uh, and yeah, it's tricky because it doesn't really fit into a nice 30 second cable news hit or whatever the heck. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I joke sometimes that we're trying to build the tribe that's against tribalism uh, or like, uh, <laughs> you know, like try and build a club of non-joiners. Frankly, <laughs> yeah. like a lot of people who are listening to you all, you're like, you know, Fuck that! I'm not joining anything. Um, uh, you know these these clubs are all corrupt, um, and so we're trying to put together a coalition of folks who want to change things. Uh, and the the early adopters to our efforts, you know, in some ways it's very invigorating. Um, it's a group of people I'm going to call democracy nerds. So it's a very very small sliver, um, but it's also military veterans, uh, a lot of military families, service members who were. Uh, built on uh, country over party, and then now they're like, "What the heck is going on?" Um, so that we're, we're getting early adopters. Um, to your point, it's you know harder to translate it to um, like a wider audience that just wants to you know like make things better for themselves day to day. But I, I will say uh, I was extraordinarily encouraged by what happened in Nevada because it won fifty three to forty seven, and this was the winning advertisement. Everything has a winning ad in life. All right. So the winning advertisement was a military veteran looking straight to camera and saying, I went overseas to defend the country for years. I came back. I can't vote in our primaries. And mm. I don't think that's right. Mm. And then the average Nevadan was like, yeah, that dude should be able to vote. Yeah. <laughs> so so, so there, there are ways you could translate it to uh, a broader uh, message that will appeal to the average person. And so, you know, when you ran here in New York, you know, they had ranked choice. It was ranked choice within the primary so it's a little bit different than the open primary. Like I think the, the the great combination is probably open primary plus ranked choice. It opens it up to everybody. But even from your experience in New York in the primary, does it have? Because my sense would be ranked choice would civilize the election a little bit. It would create opportunities for people who are running against each other to learn from each other, adopt each other's ideas. You know, in some cases, people cut deals, uh, almost like parliamentary. You know, the way you have parla- parliamentary coalitions form, et cetera. Uh, was that your experience? Because I do know it did get, I mean, it's an election still. We can always expect that it's going to get heated. But was your experience that, that the dynamic in that race was different than it otherwise would have been? Or the fact that it was a partisan primary, even with the ranked choice, you know, that kind of took over and the toxicity was there one way or the other? Um, yeah, it's a great question, Ravi. So I, I do want to say I was out campaigning and dozens of people came up to me and said, hey, yeah, and can't wait to vote for you. And then I would say, great, are you a registered Democrat? They'd say, no, I'm an independent or I'm a Republican sometimes even. And then I'd be like, well, you know, you need a time machine to go back to February and register as a Democrat to participate in this primary. So, you know. (laughs) Which, by the way, is crazy and something I've been working on locally is because they they have the vested interest, you know, it's supposed to be a liberal New York, but vested interest in people not being able to change their registration late in the game. Uh, And it's it's actually gotten better than it used to be. It used to be worse. Like, I think it used to be uh, New York's uh, voting restrictions were worse than Tennessee, where I used to live. 
Like it's crazy. You yeah. know, I'm, all I know is in the cycle I was in, you needed to have changed your voter registration or registered by February for a primary in June. And a lot That's of people insane. are not thinking about that stuff four months in advance. No. Uh, if you look at the numbers, 900,000 people voted in the Democratic mayoral primary in New York city of let's say 9 million um you know that that's 10 percent, and so the winner might have gotten like three or four percent uh and, and so you, you have a pretty non-democratic process honestly um and, and there's no good reason for it you know you ask democrats um and the you know, i mean this is a an area where the general election is a formality yeah back in the day it wasn't you know when i was a kid it was you know through the giuliani years in bloomberg it, it meant something but oh, oh by, by the way, I mean, you saw uh, something of a red wave in New York State because people are just really fed up with what's going on with the Democrats. Democrats, like when things are going badly uh, and the Democrats, there's really no one else they can blame. So just everyone just like turns on them. Um, <laughs> you know, that's how you wind up with like a George Santos winning in uh, Long Island. It's like, did these people love George Santos? No, they just freaking hated the Democrats at that moment, showed up and were like, screw that. Who's this guy with an R next to his name? Let's do it. <laughs> right. you know, I mean, that, 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 I mean the, this two-sided system is one reason why you get uh, terrible people in the office, honestly, is because like you can just make them hate the other side just enough. I just, um, speaking of people in office, I just spoke to Representative Nancy Mace for a New York Post article, and we're supposed to have her on the show as well um, down the line. And I'm curious, when you look at at people in office, people in Congress, are there are there models of people who are working within the two party system that you say or that you think are are doing a relatively good job? reaching across the aisle or are this type of people whose constituents might be um, like open to a more dynamic system like what you advocate for? Um, you know, my, my favorite uh, example of this is a guy named Dean Phillips out of Minnesota where he's like, uh, he's a Democrat. Um, he was essentially a, a like an anti-corruption business dude. who was like, what the heck is going on? And then he got it into DC and he was like, it's even worse than I thought. Mm. He, he refuses mm. to dial for dollars. I think he might have uh, money for himself, but he's like, all my colleagues are just in that cubicle dialing for dollars. And, and when asked by the press about Joe Biden, he's like, like everyone just says uh, privately, they think Joe's too old. Um, and, and he's like, I don't know why they're not saying that to the press too, but like, he's the only mm. one. Everyone else is like, Joe, Joe, Joe. So, right. um, so you can look up uh, <laughs> Dean Phillips uh, and it might be because he's from, I'm going to suggest a very uh, purplish area of Minnesota. Um, so mm. he, he strikes me as he's like, in my mind, essentially an independent. Yeah. Um, and, and so that there are folks like that, but folks like that are so rare because they have to come from zones where that's acceptable. Um, yeah. And in Dean's case, too, it's rare. Like, I, I get the sense that if Dean could do something really positive for the country and end his political career, he'd do it without thinking twice. It's hard to find politi uh, political figures you feel that way about. You're confident that's like, hey, like if they if they could do that and then just go home, they would do it. And, you know, one thing I always found fascinating about the way that you you carry yourself is I think you probably know Liz Smith in common, the, the Democratic strategist. Sure. Uh, she and I were on an airplane a couple months ago, and we were talking about how she's put Mayor Pete in front of Fox News, and she I think she either did or would put him on Barstool Sports, she told me. And it seems like you have such great relationships across this sort of alternative media landscape that is growing to become so powerful and influential, especially among these eclectics and independents. If you were advising the party, like the Democratic Party in particular, because I think the, the right does this better, I think, than the left, um, 
what how should they be engaging in this alternative media landscape because it seems like they're not showing up enough at least from where i'm sitting like they're just not go you don't see them on the lex friedmans and the rogans and bar stools uh and i'm not quite sure why i can i can probably you know guess why but what's your sense about what they should be doing you know i i did i did uh, some fact finding um for my last book um and it turns out that democrats and republicans just have a completely different relationship with media where uh, 69% of Democrats say they have high confidence in national corporate media. Uh, you go to Republicans, it's 15%. Um, yeah. For independents, it's 38%. So you can have an anti-institutional figure like, say, Donald Trump uh, win a Republican primary. But uh, on the Democratic side, it, it's like the last of, of the institutionalists. Uh, yeah. And so if, if you're a Democratic political figure, if you want to reach your voters, you don't necessarily need to use alternative media channels. Like, you know, you can just go through the the traditional channels and you feel more confident. You have like better uh, management of those interactions. Maybe you'll take some friendly uh, Instagrammers or social, or, you know, or social posters that are frankly very, very demi and, and they very much exist. Um, but your risk reward of going to like, uh, you know, Lex Friedman um, type or, or certainly a Rogan type. I mean, you know, they've done a good job of painting Rogan as like, you know, uh, conservative, which I don't really consider him to be. I, I'd, I'd say he's like very much uh, an independent type. Um, so so they've just done some calculations and we're like, you know, just probably not worth it. Uh, and they don't need the, those people to win their own elections. Um, they might need them to win a general election, to your point. Yes. Uh, if if they're going to take a shot at, um, let's say, you know, like a, a Biden-Trump rematch, but they would never put Biden in the, those situations either. You know what right. I mean? Maybe, maybe they'd send a Biden surrogate. Well, it used to be like back in the 90s, Andrew, the Republicans were the stodgy bow tie wearing. We're going to tell you what to do. We're going to try to shut down, you know, like video games because they're too violent and this and that. And look, there still are those elements. I don't want to give them a free pass for sure. There's a whole debate going on there. But I kind of woke up and the Democrats are like the ones talking about deplatforming and this person said this thing and I can't engage with them anymore. And look, like people, you know, should be responsible for things they say, like words do matter. But somehow we got to the point where this party has become like almost like the equivalent of the pearl clutchers that used to turn off the Clinton voters in the 90s. I don't know how we got here. Yeah, there there has been that something of a position switch where the the you know I mean free speech used to be a like a liberal issue, um, and then that that changed. <laughs> so I think it's a symptom of this this two sided political marketplace we have, um, where there are certain ideas and um, statements and expressions that upset certain people on the the left and 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 then there's you know that there's like this strange morphing that happened um where uh controversial statements became quote-unquote harmful um uh, and started mm -hmm. translating into like uh, almost physical attacks um and, and then that led us in into this dynamic that if i say a certain thing there's also obviously social media and cancel culture i mean if you get rid of social media it's pretty hard to cancel someone you know what i mean it's like <laughs> i say something yeah. and no one knows i can't tell you said it like you know so uh I, I mean you could pretty much put this one on social media on this note of like this transformation that you observed over your lifetime ravi i obviously being 22, it's kind of all I knew. And when I was growing up, it was like the transgressive edgy thing was on my 
little boarding school campus was to be the resident conservative and to be the odd one out on that side of the spectrum, which it's funny. I'm looking at younger members of Gen Z, even though I would say by and large, I was an outlier and in, in feeling like, I mean, now I'm much more of a moderate, but I felt like the outsider and like the person that was pushing the buttons and, you know, I wasn't necessarily too provocative, but I was rebelling against that kind of orthodoxy on my campus. And now I'm seeing these younger Gen Zers on TikTok and stuff. I, f- I already feel so old. I'm like these youths <laughs> on TikTok, but Andrew, they're like, you probably know this about Ricky. She's an 80 year old woman trapped in a 22-year-old body. Yeah, she has a book coming out, you know, <laughs> so then she looks at the TikTokers and be like, oh, look at you. <laughs> All the youths. But yeah. I'm noticing this new, like, tr- kind of trend where what, what I was feeling is happening more with younger kids who, I think a lot of my cohort were kind of, all of a sudden, cancel culture came out of nowhere and were kind of scared into silence. But these younger kids who are growing up in this environment where you have to walk on eggshells and watch what you say, even if your intent is completely honorable and kind and charitable that, you know, the least charitable interpretation is possible. They're making fun of it and they're on TikTok and they're like making fun of the excesses of wokeness because that's what their teachers or their parents are um, kind of pearl clutching over. And so I'm curious, Andrew, having, considering you have kids yourself, do you think that like, what role does Gen Z and the fact that maybe they're growing up in this, this new context like do do they give you hope that perhaps they they'll be the generation to kind of turn away from some of the excesses that we've seen that Ravi was just talking about well uh it gives me hope that people are now making light of it you know because it it used to just be deadly serious uh all, all the time and when you look at it some of it is actually kind of funny <laughs> so <laughs> so i mean it's not funny to the people who get canceled and stuff i mean i i know people who've had their uh, careers ended, honestly, and, and people mm-hmm. who make their careers in uh, public light, uh, that there is that fear factor all the time because it's like, oh, man, like, I, you know, I, I need this stuff to eat. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I'm optimistic that the culture will shift uh, in part because there, there are more young people who uh, just haven't inherited the same dogma uh, you know, and and uh, your personal story, I think, is really important, um, which is that uh, if you have any establishment narrative, people are going to rebel against it over time. I think one thing that's apparent in, in the structure of our democracy is that we tend to have people in really important positions who are way older than the average American <laughs> and definitely not enough Gen Zers or even younger millennials in public office. And it becomes more and more apparent when you watch debates over things like artificial intelligence. Yeah, scary. So as you're watching this, what do you, what do you think we should do? So take, getting out of the politics for a second, like we, we can all stipulate to the fact that we want younger people and people who are more tech savvy and all that. That's pretty obvious. But if you were sitting on the dais, you know, we're, we're recording this on a day Sam Altman uh, went and testified yesterday. What would you be asking him? What kind of solutions would you be considering? And do you even view this as a threat? Like, like if you're like giving the pie chart of threat opportunity, how are you laying it out right now? I'd be looking to operationalize a plan to put effective guardrails in place uh, in tandem with industry. Because right now you have people like Sam Allman standing up and just saying, hey, guys, you should regulate us. Uh, I know some of these people, they are not eager to destroy humanity. Uh, they would actually sign up for it. Right now, the economic incentives are pushing companies to go as quickly as possible. 
um, and adopt and implement because they're uh, in an economic existential competition all the time. Uh, Microsoft's deal with OpenAI probably boosted their stock price tens of billions of dollars, got people talking about Bing in a way they hadn't in years. Uh, and so Google immediately is like, well, we've got our own thing too. Um, uh, and the incentives are going to lead toward to missteps for sure. It's totally predictable. So uh, what do we do about it? Um, right now, unfortunately, a lot of these political figures, uh, they're, you know, DC's on a tape delay of 20 years. They don't understand this stuff. And they need to, to actually have folks in the room who are uh, the builders and experts as opposed to thinking they can figure it out from the outside. And do you ever worry about the international element of this? Like, you know, one thing that that makes me extremely pessimistic about any chances here is not just like this is a Congress that has shown itself, like has not shown itself, you know, nimble and able to regulate fast growing industries properly. But then you also have to, you know, what we do here at home is only so powerful. You know, we probably need an international treaty at a time when international distrust is so high. Um do you, what's the way out of this? Like, do you think, do you think we could do it alone here in America, and it would be worth it in and of itself? Oh, it would totally be worth it uh, here in the U.S. I mean, ideally, you'd have something like a World Data Organization and an international collaborative. Uh, the problem is that the trust level between U.S. and China is so low that you wouldn't trust that China would actually do whatever the heck it was saying as part of the World Data Organization. Anyway, you could probably right. get the EU to sign in. It might be worth it just for the U.S. and the EU. Uh, and the EU is actually ahead of the U.S. on most of these issues in terms of regulation. They have a data protection bill uh, continent-wide that's actually pretty effective and, and go, is kicking in right now as we speak. Uh, so they have data rights that we do not. Um, but yeah, like what's happening in the U.S. would be worthwhile. A, a lot of the leading companies are based here. And there are issues that could arise distinctly here in the U.S., and we wouldn't be like tying our hands, you don't think? Like if we if we regulate ourselves, the EU regulates themselves, like could we be handing China like this super weapon? That's one of the the tension points is that you want guardrails that don't impede national competitiveness, uh, but also prevent really dangerous, nasty things from happening. So uh, it it's, you know, I mean, it, if you screw it up, uh, it, it's <laughs> going to have pretty negative consequences one way or another. Um, so you want to try and thread the needle. But by the way, doing nothing, which would be the, frankly the default DC thing, is a very bad outcome. So I want to get your reaction to a headline that I saw recently that I thought was curious <laughs> um, that called Vivek Ramaswamy the conservative Andrew Yang. I'm not sure if you saw that. Um, I'm an interesting analogy to me. So I'd like to first get here, what say you to that? And secondly, what your thoughts are on this proposal that he floated to raise the minimum voting age to 25. I don't know if you've been following that, but whether whether you think that there's any sort of merit to that idea at all. Yeah, I, I came out uh, with an article in Politico today addressing the Yang Ramaswamy comparisons. And I said, I get it. We're both young, Asian, tech-savvy, and really, really good-looking. Uh, so you can check it out. Um, I, I think that particular proposal doesn't make any sense, uh, personally. Like, I, I actually was for lowering the voting age. And there were some really good mm -hmm. data points around lowering it. Because imagine if you put it at 16, every high school would have actual, like, you know, 
deciding who to vote for. And data shows that if you vote, uh, if you vote you early, you get in the habit of voting. Um, so you just be encouraging voting. The counter argument is that 16 year olds don't know anything about anything um, and their brains aren't formed. Um, but newsflash, have you seen some of the people who are actually voting right now? You know, it's not like they're, they're filling out like, you know, giant, uh, quizzes before they go in there. (laughs) Uh, And, and, uh, in my mind, young people are going to be, um, here longer. Um, so it would just make sense for them to have a say in their future. Um, I, I have a feeling that, uh, Vivek proposed that mainly as like, uh, like, like, uh, you know, like sort of, a. PR attention getting um, Mm. proposal more than Mm. anything else, because, you know, obviously it's not going to happen. Yeah. And it seems like it's um, like one of the contingencies that he was proposing to put on it is a a civics test that you have to pass in order to get around it. So I'm curious, like, would you ever be in favor of some sort of world in which that was a voting requirement? Or do you think that that is um, misdirected energy that should be put towards investing in better education? Like, how do you solve the civics education issue? Again, have you seen the people who are voting now? It's like, how many of them would pass a civics test? Like, yeah. why are you subjecting mm-hmm. a certain population to it? Two and three it, you know would I mean? fail a citizenship <laughs> test. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to flip this around, and your, your people are going to love this, I think, I hope. Why aren't we voting on our smartphones? Uh, you know? And, and if you mm-hmm. ask an elected official, why aren't we voting on our smartphones? They'll say security. And then if you give them 10 white papers saying mm-hmm. it's actually secure and military veterans are doing it from abroad right now and it would expand the franchise and a bunch of other things. Um, and, and it goes back to the Democratic primary here in New York is that um, a lot of people have no interest in expanding the franchise, whether it's o- open primaries or whatever. It's like right now the consultants know what the win number is. They know how to get it um, and they don't want anything to mess with that. Um, so imagine a world where young people could vote on their smartphones in elections, maybe even give uh, policy input um, on their smartphone, have this uh, liquid democracy that other countries, uh, frankly, have already started to experiment with. I mean, that that that's the kind of conversation I would like to, to have um, in an era where things are just going faster and faster. I think like when, when I hear people, and this is my immediate reaction when I hear voting the phones, it's like, I'll be for it. I think I would want some kind of paper trail backup. Like maybe like when you vote on your phone, it sends it to a warehouse somewhere. Like if I'm sitting here in lower Manhattan and I vote, it sends it to a warehouse somewhere where it prints out some kind of record that that happened in case there's some kind of hack or something. Yeah, Robbie, you smart. Totally. Like what, what, what you might want to do is you might want a redundant paper trail or a certain body of people actually have to do like a hard copy and then you you can do backup checks and a bunch of other stuff. I mean, one way you could do it as an example is I vote by phone, um, but then a personalized QR code gets sent to my mailing address and I scan it and then it verifies my vote. Um, mm. And by the way, that's very hard to defraud because how the heck are you going to like fake a mailing address and then get the postcard? <laughs> right. Especially if right. the mailing address corresponds to public records. So there are a bunch of things yeah. we could do that would be, you know, like uh, franchise expanding, um, but we don't really care. I mean, the, the, the fact is like the, the U.S. Is, is limping along because we have this kind of faux democracy uh, and, and they're duping us and saying, you know, oh, it's Dems versus Republicans. Where most of us live, it is not Dems versus Republicans. It's just one party in charge and they just want to maintain their little, you know, cabal and like pass it or, around to each other and there are people that are feeding on it uh and 
like that, that's really the challenge. Um, you know, mm. uh, I'm just going to go back full circle because that, that's kind of <laughs> convo it is. You know, 22% of us happy with Congress, 94% re-election rate. Uh, and, and so we're all getting pissed off for different reasons. <laughs> you know, we might be pissed off because uh, they're, they're not doing enough or they're bad at it or they're doing too much or whatever the heck it is. Um, but the anger is rising in different forms. And then, unfortunately, we're, we're channeling that anger into, like, really disparate and unproductive things. Um, like, you know, I, I, I think that it is a bit of a race against the clock uh, for us to try and um, modernize the system and make it more truly accountable. Well, Ricky, I don't know if you have anything else. Um, I was going to say I feel like it's perfect to leave it at the full circle. I don't know. All right. Well, Andrew, before we let you go, uh, obviously we're C3s, so we know that people, when they when when they look you up, there's stuff that's non-C3 compliant that they get involved in. But anything that's like safe for this, the C3 audience here at the branch and the Lost Debate podcast, uh, where, where can folks check out your work? Well, sure, man. I, I founded and ran a C three back in the day, so I'd urge everyone listening to this to vote to the C. Uh, sorry, to donate to the C three. Like, is Love there a, like a, a way they yes. can do that? Yeah, let's put it. You can go to the branchmedia.org to donate, but we'll also put it in the show notes here. I I ran a C three for years. It's you know that they run on passion and money. So send them money or passion, either way. If you want to see what I'm up to, just andrewyang.com. Um, uh, and you, you can uh, see my article on uh, on how Vivek can win the primary. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was good fun. I was trying to, to give him um, some, you know, uh, lessons from uh, from uh, uh, Nether Cycle that hopefully help him out. And not, not to say I'm pro Vivek. I'm just anti Trump. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Super generous with your time, and we really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Looking forward to the next one. The Lost Debate is a part of the Branch Network. The show is produced by Mickey Ayub, research support by Ariane Misra, video editing by Julia Waldman, and editing and sound design by Dean Metherell. 